Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying. Feel free to grab your magazine and read it backwards from, from back to front. It's another wonderful, quiet day in self-isolation. Uh, today, I thought it would be a great day to reach out to my longtime friend and uh, one of my all-time favorite lighting designers. Her name is Keely Knoble. She is in LA right now. I hope everything's going well. How you doing, Keely? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, I wanted to reach out to you, especially today, because I am truly enjoying the time spent with my my home family, but I'm also terribly missing my my road crew friends, and I always. I try not to call the people out on the road my family. I try and I like the word tribe, but for a lot of other people, it's really hard to not use that term family because we've been with them for so long. And Mm -hmm. when I think of that, I think of you primarily because you've had that family situation for so long. And now like, what are you, how are you holding up? How are you doing without, without that interaction? Well, um, I think similar to everyone in this business where we operate such like an intense high speed all the time, where we don't often have much time for ourselves, there's a lot that's really great about this time off. You know, for me as a mother of three, this is a time in my life I'll never get back that I get to have this uninterrupted time with my children. I will never have that. I will never have these days where we actually get full nights of sleep every night and get to do simple, joyful things. So we're not scrambling to just try to get to hockey practice or school events and juggling working full time and just not having enough time to breathe. So there's a lot that's really lovely about it, but I think it's hard to go from such an intense, peaky work and life stage to just flatline and it was a little bit of a tease because I was literally in rehearsals for a new Pearl Jam tour and we were in Albany and we had started production rehearsals and it was really an exciting time there were a lot of returning crew people that have been with me for a number of years but I also had some new people and it was it was so exciting because we were going to spend the next several months together on and off and I was really looking forward to building this you know new quote-unquote touring family with this band and and then just like that it was over 
Your front of house rug just got pulled out from underneath you with a... Oh my God, seriously. And the couch. If anybody doesn't know, Keely always has a wonderful front of house setup. It's very, it's, it's very welcoming. It's comfortable. And there's very always at least one or two heaters out there. <laughs> I, I've been on the other side of the snake uh, uh, for several tours with Keely where I got to run extra power for her heaters because they were crucial for the show. <laughs> yes. Yes, this is like a fact. Anyone that's worked with me always knows that there is a higher power requirement at front of house for my personal <laughs> needs. I remember the year I actually started putting it on the plot. Run a socko. Don't ask what it's for. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's important. Uh, now that I am so accustomed to the to being on the front of house side of the snake, I understand. Uh, I've had. Uh, I remember one time we had to run a gas line out to front of house for a for a propane heater because it was so cold. <laughs> yeah, I need to it up makes all the game. difference. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I would have preferred a Saco, but the the gas line was the only thing available. Oh, that's funny. So it's it's tough because I I cherish my time at home just like you do, but the interactions that I have with my kids are they're wonderful and they're magical, but they're not the same stimulation that you get from your road family. How's that, how's that affecting you? Truthfully, it's been like the beginning part of all of this. Cause I think we're going into week 10 now. The oh beginning I think was harder. And then I hit this like sweet spot, like, it's like your, your middle trimester, they call it the honeymoon period, where you feel really good and you're, <laughs> you're really productive and you really feel like you're owning it. And then I th- feel like I'm a little bit in the third trimester again, where it's like, oh, I'm still doing this. You know, I think the interaction that you have, you get so much sense of fulfillment and um, drive from interacting with your professional colleagues and when you're in a touring environment it's so much different than even the work I do here at home in television you're so reliant on the people around you on a tour in a way that you aren't necessarily like on one-offs where day in day out under some pretty difficult circumstances sometimes you're asking people like me personally as the designer I'm having to ask people to work really really hard for something that you want them to care about, right? Because it's it's better to care about what you're doing than not and instilling a sense of ownership and still like have a good time, you know? And those relationships, sometimes you'll have people maybe that you don't get along with very well, but that's part of that's part of the 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 job and that's part of this industry is and that's, that's actually a lesson I'm always telling my kids. It's like, you may not like your teacher or you may not like this person in your class, but you're going to have to find a way to work with them. But I get such fulfillment from like building these relationships as a crew under really short amounts of time. Like, especially in the PJ world, our tours don't last that long. So we may mm-hmm. only be out for a month or six weeks and you kind of have to speedball like building that sense of camaraderie and like that you're a part of this team and it's going to be a flash in the pan and the big 
scheme of things, but you're not going to have 18 months to build up that kind of rapport where you just, you know each other so well, you don't even have to ask, or you, they know your uh, likes and dislikes and sense of work ethic. Um, and so doing that in a really tight time frame, I think requires sort of a different approach. And so for me, I've always sort of come at it, like I am quite particular and I can hear like a roar of people laughing and snickering when I say that. Like I, I definitely have high expectations and I, and I, I have, you know, high standards, but I've always tried to attain that by instilling like an appreciation for what everyone's doing and, and that camaraderie doesn't just happen on show days. It doesn't just happen um, when you're in the venue. It happens on the bus, it happens on days off, it happens on travel days. And so I want my crew to be my friends. You know, I, I want that sort of atmosphere of a family um, in those short periods of time together. And I've been so lucky to just be surrounded by such good men and women over the years who want to come back and work together time and time again. And, um, and as the years progress, those relationships get tighter and tighter. And, and, you know, the new people that come onto the crew sort of like, we're like casting our magic dust on them, like to come into the fold and be a part of our club. But it is very different than obviously the the relationship you have at home. It's it's kind of incomparable because when mm -hmm. you nail something in the professional world, like you get through a really hard gig or a hard show day, and you know I am I am only as good as the people around me. Like the show is only as good as the people that invest in it and and work so hard every day to make it that and. Um, and when you step back and you see the the culmination of like your whole team, like you step back and you go, wow, that was an amazing show. And that it's such a unique field in that you there's no one person that was responsible, right? It's everyone. It's it's everyone on my team, it's everyone on a, in a different department. And there's something so gratifying about that. There's something so fulfilling, and that is not something you get at home. And so not having that is hard. You know, I miss it. I miss it terribly. I miss my, my, my colleagues. I miss, you know, I was really excited. I had a new crew chief. It was the first time he was ever going to crew chief. And it was like this huge opportunity and I was excited for him. And like, we were all there and it was like, this is going to be great. And then it's just like, ah, sorry, <laughs> you're going to have to wait yeah. for that experience. At home, after a day of uh, teaching the kids and homeschooling, you know you knocked it out of the park, and then you you get up, and there's nobody there to offer you a drink. There's nobody to turn on the house lights for you. There's there's nobody clapping at the end of the day. No. So you kind of have to just. <laughs> there's yeah, no one with, there to pull your snake. Like nobody. You're your own. <laughs> you end your day of, of work, and then you just you got to pack it up yourself and. Kids are terrible. Kids are terrible at packing up their own stuff. Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. I, I remember um, before I had had kids, um, I went to see my cousin who had just had a baby, and she's very, like, she's professional, 
super uber brainiac scientist. And there she was like rocking, bouncing her baby. And I could just tell how exasperated she sort of felt. I think the baby was maybe six or seven months old, pretty young. And she was just like, you know, I am an accomplished based person. I get my sense of like worth and fulfillment by accomplishing things every day, you know, professionally. And now I feel like if I get one load of laundry done, I've done something. And I remember, this is before I had kids, those words always sort of resonated. And then when I had my first child, I was like, holy shit, I know what she's talking about. Because so much of your identity and your sense of self-worth, I think, is tied up in what you do professionally. And we have such a like immersive profession where it's all in. You're living on the road. You're living with other people. It's just not like a nine-to-five job. And so when suddenly that's gone, whether it's because you come off the road to have a baby or you come off the road because of this, it's really unsettling because you don't have that thing that's constantly like feeding your sense of drive, your ego. I'm someone that likes to be doing something all the time. And there's mm-hmm. only so many projects you can do around the house. There's only, and, and now it's changing a little bit. Like as a family, we'll be able to get out and maybe get back to the beaches and hikes, but that was all gone. So mm-hmm. it's, you definitely feel, I feel a little lost at sea in all of this, you know? Uh, like you just touched on having a team of people out on the road, the things that we can get done in an hour is exponential compared to what I can get done in an hour with my two kids. I can't even get roller skates on in an hour <laughs> at home and out the door. Uh, I, know. I can load seven trucks of crap in an hour out on yeah. the road because everybody's on board and they're all willing to help out. And here, man, they just don't, they don't respond the same as my, my touring tribe. They, they want to well, argue. No. <laughs> yeah, they talk back. They well, talk maybe back. Have some touring tribe that talk back, but yeah, it's it's uh it's definitely a different dynamic. I get accused a lot of being a sergeant major in this house, and we I have to run a really tight ship. You know, I have all boys, which I think is also part of like it was when when my third son was born. You know, people are always like, "Did you want a girl? Was he supposed to be the girl?" I'm like, no, I never, like, I always wanted boys, but you don't want to admit it, right? You're like, whatever, girl, boy, doesn't matter. But I secretly always wanted three boys because I, I've been living and touring with men since I was, you know, in my <laughs> early 20s. And I sort of felt like, I think this is what I'm best prepared to deal with. I've had more insight into the male <laughs> psyche than your average woman. I think I know, like, three boys, I got this. But three boys, man, they come with their own challenges. The level of energy and like physical needs that they have as boys. Yeah, it's intense. And and you're right. Like it's that level of productivity that I think you just go from 100 to 20, 10, mm-hmm. you know, 20 on a good day. So... They, you can't discipline, and I don't, I'm not saying any sort of discipline, but uh, you, can't, you can't correct bad behavior the same way at home as you can on the road. Like if I say something three times on the road and you don't do it, 
you're out of here. That you, you know, you got three chances. You're gone. You, you're not going to cut it out here. At home, I find myself just four, five, six, ten times. Like, how are you not listening to the words coming out of my mouth? Yeah. What is yeah. happening? Like, am I am I speaking French? Well, actually, <laughs> right. my kids speak more French than I do now, but that, I, fi- I find that really taxing. Yeah, I guess I've never really compared the two. Like, but I there are sort of some similarities in terms of like leading through confidence. You know, I have my kids are a little bit older, so it's right. it's a lot easier to take away the things that they like in response to poor behavior. Mm-hmm. So that that has you know this time is unique because at least for my kids, how they're getting their social needs met is all online through video right. gaming. That is totally different. I mean, normally they're, they're connecting, but they're seeing their, their friends at school every day. So the need to supplement that social absence is totally different. And so I give them a much, you know, they have a lot more leeway in terms of the amount of time they can game during this time just so that they can hang out with their friends. So on one hand, I know I can say, okay, listen, if you don't do your chores or if you talk to me like that again, it's going away for the day. It's, it's tough though, because when you take away something like that during this time, you're taking away their social outlet. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of a fine line, but I, you know, we have good days and bad days, but it took, at least for our family, it just took a few weeks to find the right routine. And at least in my house, I function better on a schedule. They function better on a schedule. So we just run a really tight schedule and, it seems to be working, but God, like how much longer, you know, they're going to be out of school soon. <laughs> oh my That's the crazy thing is they're done with school in a month. And then we're into the summer without places to go during the summer. I think there's going to be a lot more upheaval. People just like, yeah, I'm done summertime. I'm out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not encouraging anybody to go out uh, and do anything stupid, but uh, once the summer comes, it's going to be tough. Uh, yeah, I mean, school is a godsend because at least Monday through Friday, you know, from 8.30 to about 2 o'clock, that's a, a day I'm not having to battle to stay off the screen, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so one of the things you touched upon that I think is very profound that a lot of people outside of our industry don't understand is how quickly you have to build a solid relationship out on the road. When I first had to explain to my, my parent-in-laws where I go to work and the, who, the, who the people are that I work with, they did not get it. Like I would tell them like, Hey, I'm going to Australia to do a job. They're like, well, who are you going with? Well, I don't know the people yet. Mm-hmm. Well, are you their boss? Well, I mean, kind of, I'm, I'm going to direct them around. Well, how do you know them? Well, somebody else put us all together. Well, are they going to do a good job? God, I, I hope so. And it was just that these normal questions that you would think from somebody who's had a job at the same factory for 15 years. Well, you know all your employees, right? Well, no. Do you know what you're hoping to accomplish? Kind of. Do you know who's good at doing what? No. Uh, not yet. <laughs> not yet. I'm going to find out really quickly, though. Yeah. And that's, that's a skill that we, that we have. I think we might take it for granted. Uh, how have you crafted that skill? 
I've, you know, I've spent more time thinking about that sort of later, in, like not later, like still got a lot of years left in this, but <laughs> I think about that more now than I did early on, you know. I think when I first started, especially because I started at, at a time where there were very, very few women that were in positions of like, you know, programmer or LD type positions or even lighting director. And so when I was young and didn't have the confidence that I do now, I, I was a lot more hesitant to ask things of people. Um, mm. I, I think, I think I, I started everything with a, I'm sorry, but do you mind kind of approach? Because I, I wanted people to like me. I didn't want to be like, I wanted I wanted to get along with people and I knew I was at higher risk. If I, if I was snarly or snarked an order or said, Hey, I just need this done now. I'd be like the bitch, you know, it was, I think a subconscious effort to be everyone's friend and not make waves. But over time, when I, I became more confident in my own abilities, not only just professionally, but as a designer, I think that changed. I don't think it was a conscious thing. I think it's just time. Like I have a lot of confidence now, but I don't think I have, I don't think I'm overly confident. And so I carry myself with a sense of confidence. Um, and I don't, I no longer apologize for wanting to attain high standards, right? Or high expectations. I think I have a reasonable knowledge of what is attainable and what is unreasonable on a day-to-day -day basis. Like if I ask for something to be done in the rig and it's half an hour before doors and it's basically gonna kill them and it's no one's gonna notice except for me during the show, I'm not gonna make an ask like that. So the things that I ask for, I, I feel are reasonable. And I've been told, you know, with the people that I've worked with over time, they kind of come into it knowing that do have high standards, but I try never to be a jerk. Like I never lose my temper. I don't talk down to people ever. I don't think. I treat everyone with respect. If someone is someone I don't typically get along with, I have ways of dealing with that that I hadn't really thought about in the past, but I just keep everything very businesslike with someone like that. Um, whereas people I might be socially more comfortable around or have a better working relationship with, it's like a little bit more open and friendly and there's more um, like fraternizing. But I think it's changed over time, but it's nothing like I was schooled on, right? Mm -hmm. Just develop your own technique over time. So one of the things you just touched on was actually really tough for me to learn. And I don't want to get too much into gender differences, but asking for help as a man was almost impossible. We were taught not to do it. Right. You know, you just anything you can do on your own, you do. If it, right. Unless it's lifting a case that you just can't physically lift, then you can ask for help. Was it different as a, as a, as a female asking for help before you had really set up, no, uh, I think established? it was harder. I think it was, was it? harder. I think yeah. so. Well, well, because like if you ask for help as a woman, then you come off as like the helpless woman. I mean, again, like you're not unreasonable. Like I'm not going to lift the ballast on my own. I'm going to ask for help. 
Right. Um, but that has changed also for me. I don't care anymore. I think yeah. so much changes when you just have greater confidence in yourself and mm -hmm. you actually have some years under your belt to step back and go, okay, well, this is, this wasn't a flash in the pan. I'm, I'm okay at this. Like I've lasted, you know, like I've, <laughs> I've, I've earned the right to sit back and ask for my heater power to be run. <laughs> Hell yeah. Keely needs that heater. Keely's going to get <laughs> that the heater. Hell yeah. So you actually started off in a training position as well. If I remember you were training mm -hmm. on the icon desk and people would, would have to ask you for help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you were the you were the authority at the time. You were the training on uh, was it was it the icon right? Yeah, it was the icon console, which is so hilarious. Now you think about consoles. Now I can barely patch a console now. That's not true. I can patch a console, but not much more. Yeah, I, that was fresh out of college, and I I went to college with a couple guys that went on to work at LSD back in the day, and so I got my shoe into LSD through Walter Holden. And he put my name in the hat and it was just good timing. I was cheap because I was fresh out of college and I was hungry and to hire someone from the road to come off the road to give them a full-time position as a trainer, it would have been cost prohibitive for the company. And so I just, I just was in the right place at the right time to get that gig, even though I had never programmed a show when I first started training but I was just like a sponge. I just, anyone that came through the door, I, I would glean whatever information I could. And, and there were some really, really, really generous people back then who took the time to really share their knowledge in a respectful way. And then there was a fair share of people that were pretty resentful and, and kind of jerks about it. Like, what is she doing training me? She's never even been on the road. And so it was, it was an interesting time, but I learned so much so so much and it was a great way to meet a bunch of designers because a lot of the designers would come in for training so i got to meet a bunch of people i got to talk to people from sort of all walks of show life and then when i finally went freelance it, it better prepared me i started programming after i started training while i was still there mm -hmm. but it was a great training ground to be honest so you had already amassed these these contacts and it was only a matter of time from from the day somebody was calling you at midnight asking for tech support to the day that somebody's like, you know what, we should just have Keely out here. So <laughs> yeah. Let's uh, let's just steal her and get her out here and let's just keep her on our team now. Yeah. Yeah. And I was ready. I think I was at LSD about four years. I did that for about four years and then I went pretty oh, That's a good run. Yeah. But I worked with them for a long, long time before they got, you know, became another company and then another company and another company again. Yeah. Who was the first person to reach out and say, Hey Keely, you, you should come out here and make some real money. I don't think it was one person in particular. I wanted to leave, but it was okay. terrifying, you know, yeah. um, to jump off that cliff. But the person in that time period, I worked with the most after I left and I spent probably a decade on and off working with her was Abby Holmes. And she truly was, and still is, like, she was such a mentor to me during that time. And, and we worked so well together and had so much fun in those years and uh, had a lot of good runs. And to this day, if, like, 
if I have a little quandary, a little lighting quandary, everyone needs a good mentor in this business. And I was lucky enough that not only was she my mentor, whether she realized it or not, <laughs> she was just a really great work colleague. We had so much fun together. Wow, that's that's lucky. She's a she's a great person. Oh yeah, she's a uh, badass. I mean, she is a badass. I mean, talking about women in the business at a time where there was no women. Holy smokes, you want the stories? Talk to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like interacting with her. She's a she's a great person to hang out with. Yeah, she's um, the best. You mentioned that you had come straight out of school to the training. I believe that was Cal Arts, correct? Yeah, yeah. Do you find that uh, having a your an educational background is is helpful, or do you think it uh, holds you back? Oh, it doesn't hold you back. I, I get asked that question a lot. I think having going to college was helpful to me for a few reasons. Is it necessary to go to a four year college for it? Probably not. Could are people just as successful, if not more, without it? Absolutely. The things that it gave me that made it worth it, a a job in the business, which I wouldn't have gotten otherwise, mm-hmm. um, because just from a networking standpoint, to this day, there's a whole posse of us from that time period. Everyone went on to be very successful in the business, and I'm still friends and even work with them sometimes. But I was really into dance lighting at CalArts. I was always into dance lighting. I actually went to Interlochen Center for the Arts for high school. And I started to get into it there, but um, it was a lot of ballet there. And by the time I got to CalArts, CalArts is all modern dance, at least it was at that time. And I was just really drawn to it, kind of for the same reasons that I'm drawn to lighting for music. You know, so much of what you create in the visual environment is through lighting and and modern dance and, and music. And I had a really amazing teacher. He was the technical director for the um, dance department, DK. And he took a number of us under his wing. And he he gave me probably the greatest gift educationally as a lighting designer I ever got in the four years I was at school. And anytime you would go in to light a, uh, a dance piece, he would time it. He wouldn't let you, he would only give you a certain amount of time to work with the choreographer. So you really had to have your shit together. And he, he helped me learn not by telling me how to do it, but creating all these opportunities. He, he helped me learn how to create a vocabulary to talk to artists about pretty esoteric concepts like lighting. Lighting is hard to quantify. Lighting is hard to describe to someone ahead of time. Like I would like to do, I would like to make it sparkly and blue. And then occasionally like, you know, we'll have these little strobe things. And it's really hard to describe to people. And it turns out choreographers are just really, really like, there's, it's such good practice to learn how to describe what you want to, like collaborating with a vision, having that sort of arty conversation, but then further sort of learning how to describe what you're going to deliver or what you're intending to try to accomplish. And lighting is not something you can do, as we all know, in a studio. You can't just go and practice in a studio how to light something. I mean, we have previs and all that now, which we didn't back then. But even still, previs is no substitute for the real thing. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It's great for building blocks. That's a whole other conversation. And it's not to disparage it or minimize it in any way, but the actual nuance of what we do, the sort of fine detail of what we do, you can only do that by practicing. So that's probably the only other thing I would say college was super valuable for, especially CalArts at the time encouraged us to do, like you had to do your core requirements in the theater school, but I could light as many shows as I wanted to. So I lived in the dance department. I lit anything that I could. And it just gave you practice. It gave you practice picking colors and angle and all that kind of crap that you can only do by doing. Yeah, if nothing else, uh, you touched on a a big topic is that is the the skill of collaboration and translation to be able to take designer speak and turn that into programmer speak to make words like, make it look ethereal. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, okay, I I know what what Keely might be talking about. Yeah, does that mean Congo with a Starry Night Gobo? Maybe. I don't know. Oh, that, yeah. That's a whole other interesting conversation, the language between designers and programmers. That's mm-hmm. like, that is, I, and, and the learning curve you have whenever you work with someone new where you're like, but I said, Chucka, like, oh, oh, you don't know what Chucka is. Oh, and when I do this with my hands, like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I you want don't know fi- what that means. <laughs> I want the lights to peel like left yeah. to right, but like this with my hands, There's, the way you see it. There's uh, no universal language, you know. And sometimes fall into uh, thinking there is. Having an educational background, it, I feel more prepared to translate stuff like that, and I've I've always felt that was a, a leg up that you can't see on paper. Yeah, uh, I think it teaches you really good organizational skills because a lot of colleges you have to assist. And that's mm-hmm. a really typical way into the, uh, like the theater world. You spend a lot of time assisting. That's not as common in our world. So mm-hmm. I think from a sort of organizational paperwork standpoint, I'm pretty fastidious in terms of organization. Um, so I, I got a lot out of it, but I don't think it's necessarily for everyone. And I don't think it's even entirely necessary there's lots of people that do what we do without it and are wildly successful and good at what they do so do you find that your skills of collaboration are better like i'm trying to think uh, i believe you work with spike on uh, on a couple projects and you you do a a handful of co-designs and stuff if i remember yeah absolutely i think all that stuff just gets better with time and practice and those partnerships with spike and his his partner justin they're the principal nimblest. Yeah, Justin Colley. Those guys, they've been my buddies since since the old days. We all got started at LSD around the same time together. And I love working with those guys. And and when we partner, it tends to be on projects because scenic design has never really been in my wheelhouse. I I, I like it. I'm interested in it. I have strong opinions about when a production design is going from inception to reality. But as far as the nuts and bolts of it, it's not really my area of strength. So when I've had projects in the past where it's been needed, um, I've, I've partnered with them. And the great thing about working with them is they're both lighting designers. And we get along so well, like we definitely have one of those relationships where you, you're just so in sync together. Um, 
but it's really fun working with, with those guys because everything starts like the whole design starts like an even playing field, lighting, scenic, video, automation. It's all, um, it's all percolated from the same place, right? It's not like production design comes in and then I slap lighting on later. Like it's, it all comes from the ground up and we, we work on every element of the design together. And just because my, I take the lead on lighting doesn't mean that I can't get involved in what they're doing and vice versa. It's been super fulfilling. That's nice to be able to have a, a common language to be able to reach back and forth, even though you, you know, it's not your expertise, but you know that you have strong opinions that you need to be, you need heard. Yeah. Like, hey, this, this bird mm -hmm. needs to flap its wings. So make well, it do exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I always think like the work as a whole, when you have multiple sets of eyes on it, it's just stronger. And, and that's true. Like it's, it's pretty rare that we ever get to program together, but, um, a number of years ago when Justin and I were doing Soundgarden together, it just so happened one programming session or there were a couple of programming sessions where he was there kind of man managing all the content and we had this like automated um, curtain system that would make like picture windows of varying sizes and track on and off and up and down. And so he was sort of heading that, but like there's no division, right, between like I do lighting, you can't have an opinion. And it was so, <laughs> so fun to, because it, it's so, how often do you get to work with another designer mm -hmm. in that capacity where you can sit and write lighting cues? And, and we would have these like, you know, <laughs> we would just have these full on, um, not debates, but like we would just sit there and sort of philosophize about lighting cues. It would be like, we would drill so far into why it should probably be cyan and not red and like and we're both really detail oriented <laughs> so you get two super detail oriented people in and it, it, there are a, a few programmers that could probably tell some stories about those programming sessions of mom and dad arguing in a friendly way about mm -hmm. why things needed to be a certain way <laughs> Oh, you just hit the nail on the head of what I miss about the touring, touring family and design world. Yeah. I keep asking my kids the same similar questions and hoping for similar responses and they just don't respond the same. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, Tiger, what, uh, what color should this song be? And he's like, it should be rainbow. Rain All the songs are rainbow. Oh, oh yeah. Man. Oh, Tiger. We're gonna have to work on that. <laughs> there. <laughs> So I'm down to my last 10 minutes, but I have a couple questions that actually came from my audience that I have to ask you about. The first one was about the Temple of the Dog Tour, and a lot of people want to hear how that went and how important that was for you. Oh, yeah. That was kind of a, that was definitely a moment in our industry. Yeah. It was actually the anniversary of Chris's passing yesterday. Um, mm. That was a really really special tour um it was like a once in a lifetime kind of tour and even when it was happening you knew that you knew that this was probably going to be the only time that these guys were ever going to get together and do this i don't know it just didn't it it really seemed like it was just going to be a one-off special thing and we would probably never see this again not for the reason obviously that ended up happening but mm -hmm. 
it was really small. It was so interesting because obviously, you know, like the majority, like I do so much work with PJ and have done for so many years. And the majority of the band in Temple is PJ guys with Chris. And so it was really interesting in the, in the sort of design stage, talking to the guys. And it was, it was almost a given for all of us. Like we, we really didn't want it to feel like a PJ show in any way. Mm-hmm. And it, it wouldn't just musically, obviously, but visually we really didn't want it to feel, we wanted it to feel super different. And so we made some choices about how it would look so that it would really sort of stand on its own two feet that I think were pretty successful. And, and a lot of that actually came from Jeff Amon, the bass player. He said, you know, I just love washes, like really, like for us, it would be like, like non-source washes, just big, big washes. He, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said, like, I really don't like it when you see the cones. You know what he was talking about? <laughs> yeah. Right? The, yep. the hard edge cone. He's like, I hate that. I was like, wow, I've had a lot of cones in my life. <laughs> and so I just leaned super heavy into like big ethereal washes, no hard edge, like strong sort of like um sourcey lighting from overhead it was predominantly lit from the sides and the floor um it all had to fit on one truck spike and i came up with this really low tech tree concept they had said because the only music video they did was shot in this park in seattle and so they had wanted sort of a tree tie-in and so our first, our first concept drawings that went to them, we had all these trees and they're like, ah, we didn't mean like real trees. <laughs> <laughs> Too literal. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh shit. Oh, okay. Trees. So that's where the, we made these rope, like, like cones out of ropes and they were on um, like a rope and ship. So it was like, it was so low tech and awesome like it was human automation. So I think we had six wow. of them and they, they started, did they start low and grow or grow and fall down? One or the other, I can't remember. They either started tall and then they collapsed later on, but they looked so beautiful and they lit so beautifully. Um, but anyway, it was, it was a mesmerizing tour and every night was like one you wouldn't forget. And um, it was super special, super special. How many shows were there? There weren't, it was just there a dozen, many. dozen-ish. Yeah. 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 About that. We did get to play it. it I, we played a lot of theaters. I think there were some small arenas, but we did actually play Madison Square Garden. That was the only show where like our little baby tiny rig was like a little bit like a postage stamp, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter at all. You could have turned on. Yeah. For something for like that, that it would have been. Yeah. And that's, that's really amazing. what it was all about. That's actually the second question that I have is uh, I get a lot of questions. Or I got a lot of people asking what's up with Keeley hit the lights uh, because yeah. that's actually become quite a, uh, an internet sensation and that you're actually fairly well known for that being yeah. uh, part of your, 
your bag of tricks. Uh, how did that come to be? Uh, for uh, most people my, that don't, for anybody that doesn't know already, uh, there's a thing where uh, Eddie, and it's even been in some of the recordings where it says, hey, Keely, hit the lights. And a lot of people know you by that. Yeah. Um, so all our shows are recorded and have been, mm -hmm. I think, the whole time I've been with them now. I started with them in 2000. So where that came from is they always want to uh, end the show in house lights. And they've been doing this, well, since before I started with them. And so the last few songs, they just want, like, they just want to turn off all the toys and just play the last few songs in house lights and be totally connected to the audience and see everyone and like no more fanciness. And I never knew when he wanted it. And I, they, oh my God, stepping into that role, you know, because their set list changes every night, just like surviving a show when I first joined the tour, like I, because they changed so much on the fly, like they would change songs and I, I'd be like waving at the sound guy going, what is this? I don't know this song. You know, obviously I know all their material <laughs> now, but those, but those early years were rough. They were, uh, I was like constantly like just trying to keep up, you know? And so come the end of the night, I never knew when he wanted the lights on. Like it wasn't, it's much more methodical now. We have kind of a logical place we do it now. There's a lot less guesswork. So after the first few times where I just was not getting it, I just didn't have the intuition as to know, well, this particular song, it just feels right and do it and go for it. He started calling for it. And then, cause he's like the coolest, nicest guy. He was like, oh, I'll just, throw her a bone and help her out and let her know where it goes, you know? And so I'll it just, just tell you. Thing. Yeah, I'll just right. tell you. And, yeah. and so that's kind of where it started. He doesn't really, I mean, sometimes he'll do it, but uh, my voice is unfortunately a permanent record <laughs> of the bands <laughs> for better, for worse some nights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, if any of you have been to a Pearl Jam concert, the last few songs are in full work lights. And when I was working with Keely, I was, I would be on the other end of, of the other side of the headset and the house guys would just be so confused because the show would still be going on and yeah. Keely would call house lights go and people would, they would want to argue with me or Dan. Uh, they would go like right. the, the song that's still going. I'm like, yes, turn on the house lights. You mean like the aisle lights? No, all the lights. You mean yeah. like, just the park hands? No. Turn on everything you have. And uh, eventually the, the best term we could come up with was full hockey. Most people would understand. Yeah. Full yeah. And you would just yeah, say, exactly. seriously, full hockey right now. And some people, because sometimes you would have one guy during the day and then a new mm -hmm. guy at night. That's right. And I, would, I would have spent the whole day explaining to the guy, like, look, I'm going to call house lights at a weird time. And he'd be like, yep, got it. No problem. And then when I go to call house lights, it would be Debbie. And you're like, where's Jim? Like, I'm Debbie. Jim left hours ago. Okay. Oh, yeah. Debbie. Now, there are all sorts of hazards that happen in the course of this very simple ask. I don't know if you, were you with us in Mexico City where mm -hmm. the house lights came on at the total? Oh, God. So, <laughs> um, 
so one of the the toughest things is when house lights isn't on calm, right? They're on radio. Mm. And so you get all the static and the background noise of the venue floor coming across radio and they think, wait, is that a standby or is that a go? And then you add a language barrier to it. You get house lights coming on at the totally fucking wrong time. And that's what happened in Mexico <laughs> City. It happened like, I don't know, like eight songs before the end. It's usually like the two or three songs tops, you know, and it happened right in the middle of a super moody song. I don't remember which one. So it's, not, it's, it's, it's not without its share of hazard. It, you're right. It seems so simple. It seems like there should just be a, a, a button that you should be able to push with like a, a giant red easy button that just says right. now or easy. But for some reason, it confuses so many people. Yeah, it does. We've, I think we've gotten better over time and simplifying it. We make it like such a thing now that mm -hmm. we have a system that's pretty effective. But the hardest thing is just getting venues to turn everything on. It's like, no, I don't want walk-in. I want everything mm -hmm. that you like they want to see the back of the house you know so sometimes they're like it's really bright and i'm like i know okay. i know yep it's not for you it's for them and it works i mean if you've ever it's, seen a show awesome. like it i think if you've never been to a show the first time it happens you're like what is going on mm -hmm. but if you've ever been to one you're like oh okay i'm mentally preparing now for the fact that this is the last few songs we're like taking it down we're, you know, ending the night. Like, that's when you see, like, these, like, you know, little dance parties in the house. Like, there will be groups of people sort of swaying together. And it's just a, a lovely yeah. way to end up, end the show. Keep on rocking in the free world and works perfectly in all house lights. It was, it yeah. was, there were some moments there. The last question that actually came from the audience was, where are you finding the best chicken wings these days? Oh, my God. That's a thing for you. You are traveling the world okay. looking for the best chicken wings. What, yeah, you uh, know who is to blame for that? To report? You know who is to blame for that is Dan McDonough. Really? I never, ate, I never ate a chicken wing in my life before touring with Dan McDonough, who I toured with for a number of years. But even all those years together and his quest for chicken wings, it didn't really wear off in, on me until probably the last decade. My favorite chicken wings. Um... There's a place that Dan and I went to in San Francisco, the name I cannot remember, but it's near where um, Outside Lands is. Okay. There's a bar there that has really exceptional chicken wings. Locally, there's a place in Glendale I really like. But it's kind of a road thing for me. Mm -hmm. I'll have chicken wings at home, but for me, it's like, it's, you know, I don't go to sports bars when I'm home, but when I'm on the road, I love going to a sports bar and watching hockey and having chicken wings and sitting at the bar. And that's like my happy place on the road. It's nice to have something like that out on the road. It's something to get you out of your hotel room. You're like, well, I'm in Podunk, Dixie yeah, right now. I'm, I should at least go look for some chicken wings. Gotta look for some chicken wings. And, you know, like I can always find a few recruits, speaking of camaraderie, to come with me mm -hmm. in the ever- and the never-ending quest for fine, fine chicken wings. Yeah, I've had guys out on the road that they're the ones that you'll never find stuck in their hotel room because they're looking for craft beer or yeah. something that is local. That they, they, you, you can't just go to your hotel bar and get it. You have to actually Google and do some search and yeah. maybe some, a modicum of research of the town that you're in to try and find 
or even reach out to somebody in that town and say, hey, who has the best craft beer? Who has the best X or Y? And just go find it. Yeah, I'm definitely one of those. I, I'm not a stay in your hotel room all day kind of road people. I, I always get out of the room and try to drag as many people with me as I can. Good for you. That's a, that's a great way to do it. Oh, I so. think I think we're lucky. You know, we get paid to travel. I, that never gets old for me. Yeah, I can't wait to get back to that. Jeez, yeah, me both. Yeah, I uh, the best traveling I can get right now is driving to the supermarket. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, the adventurous Costco. Go to the. Yeah. Try and find different spots. I'll, you know, just drive on the wrong side of the road just to feel like I'm in Europe or something. Uh, yeah. In England. Uh, in fact, just recently, I've just to make it feel like I'm going somewhere, I'll go and I'll sleep in the bunk bed in my kid's room just to like convince Sharon that I'm going somewhere and I'm coming back. Like, because that's part of our system, you know, I have to be going somewhere and coming back somewhere. So I'll, I'll like kiss my wife goodbye. I'm like, hey, I'm going to go to Tiger's bedroom. <laughs> I'll be back in, you know, a day. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a lot of home time, but I, I can't complain, you know, no, I have very I, little I, time with you. I, I will not get this time back with my kids and it's, yep. it's a unforeseen gift, not to sound like a cornball, but yep. it is. Thank you so much, Keith. I really appreciate the time together. This, this, uh, this makes this me feel fun. so much better to be able to sit and, philosophize with another LD for just an hour. It's nice. I really appreciate well, it's it. Fun. It's fun. It's nice to kick the cobwebs off of like the professional part of your brain. Just talking to another uh, adult human being is great. Yes, so, it is. Thank I you for being you. an adult human being on the other side of this. <laughs> with me. It's a pleasure. It was fun. Yeah.